Hey there. Welcome to the Deeper Podcast, where we are continuing to dive into the world of gender's strange and sacred nature. I'm Reverend Sean, and for those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know this podcast is all about how we can develop the courage to live lives that can love the hell out of this world, in not only those big ways that seem out of reach, but in the small, everyday ways that lead and snowball to cascades of change. Today on the podcast, we're talking about men. Gretchen's offering a message about how the category of men, even though it is the dominant and the default, is underexplored, leaving men awash in conceptions of masculinity that are so outdated, but without any sort handholds to think about masculinity in a different way or to practice it. How do we become better men? Now, this is a really complicated topic, and a lot of us are going to have a lot of different experiences with it, depending on how we relate to being men. As you've listened to the last podcast, you know, I have a very complicated relationship with this category. And really, I think that's the invitation that Gretchen is offering for all of us. How do we invite ourselves into a more complicated relationship, a more nuanced, a more complex relationship with what it is to be a man? Now, also on this podcast, we're going to answer some of the questions that we've come into our question box. If you have a question you'd like to answer, you need to get it in fast because we're coming to the end of this series. So you can go to foothillsuu.org slash genderfluent to submit your questions, and we'd love to hear them. One of the questions that arrived in our question box last week went something like this. Really? Gender is the most important thing, not climate change, not women's health rights. Yet another unarmed black man is executed by police, and you want to talk about pronouns? Now, I really respect where this question is coming from because I feel the heart of it is trying to bring our attention to pressing social concerns. And yet eco-feminists and eco-theology would remind us that the way that we relate to the earth is often mirroring gendered relationships in a patriarchal sense. I don't know how we can talk about women's health rights without talking about gender. I don't know how we can understand the ways that blackness and masculinity come together to create a sense of fear and a need for police suppression without talking about gender. All of these things that are important are interrelated, and that's one of the core conceptions that we are bringing to this series, and hopefully all of our series, is the ways that all of the questions in front of us intersect together. And by looking at those intersections more deeply, even if we're focusing on one of them, it allows us greater clarity on seeing how they're all connected. What's interesting is that this person goes on and says, I'm doing my best to be more love. I'm interested in what it means to be a man. So I'm hoping they're listening to this podcast. It says, I'm lonely. I want to share life and love. I miss touch. I crave hugs. All of this, I would say, is incredibly gendered in the ways that men are constructed and are confined in our society. And so, yeah, I think gender is a really important thing for us to be talking about, especially when we see it in light of the other social realities, like climate change, like racism. Because when we look at those together, we're able to see a bigger picture and see what liberation might look like for everyone. Now, where we're going to begin today is we're going to listen to a member of our community reflect on the question, where did he learn to be a man? So I'm going to turn it over to Tim Weinman to begin us. Where did you learn about being a man? What does it mean to be a man? How has your sense of being a man changed? These are prompts to help me write this reflection, but they'd also sound great in an aftershave commercial. Everything I need to know about being a man I learned from Old Spice. And under capitalism, isn't man just a consumer category? Isn't masculinity just a prick of anxiety, salved by the purchase of a gym membership, an expensive bottle of whiskey, or a very, very big truck? I know I'm not making any new observations here. My dad was a boy when Mick Jagger sarcastically barked, he can't be a man if he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. When I was a boy, the men my siblings and I grew up around were both scary and pathetic. They would hit us and scream at us and everyone else and take us to a football game. They would go far away and live their secret lives and return like air masses, sometimes cold and falling, sometimes warm and rising. 
Those were the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan's Federal Communication Commission eliminated many of the rules which had regulated children's television. In particular, they freed the toy industry from the prohibition on producing half-hour toy commercials disguised as children's programming. Thus America, and us kids, entered into a golden age of cheap plastic junk. And at age four, none of that junk meant more to me than He-Man. You remember He-Man? He was like Conan, except the six-foot sword he swung around never seemed to actually hurt anyone. He-Man was not scary, and not pathetic. Campy, sure, in retrospect, but not scary and not pathetic. Yes, his name was absurdly chauvinistic, his body was impossibly rippled, but in spite of the corporate cynicism that birthed him, he was an okay role model. He was kind and warm and sort of funny. His world and his adventures centered around power. Who had it? What were they going to do with it? The evil Skeletor, his nemesis, was as scary and pathetic a villain as you could find on that side of the screen. And he wanted power for its own sake, to gratify himself. He-Man wanted power to protect his friends and people weaker than him, which was everyone. Sitting in front of the screen at four in the afternoon every day, I learned what a man could be, according to Mattel. Now, at 40, I've been known to rewatch snippets of the 1987 live-action He-Man movie while I'm making dinner and washing the dishes. The Bible says to put away childish things. It sounds like good advice, but I worry I don't have much else. So back to the prompts. What is a man? From what I can tell, a man is a product of his culture. And in America, that means, in the absence of some contradictory social movement, some other power, he's a product of the market. He's here to buy whiskey and trucks and nostalgia and whatever else is for sale. Exactly what that contradictory movement looks like, I know it centers love. I so appreciate how Tim weaves in the complexity of the economic system that we're caught in and how it drives so much of our identities, not just for men, but for people of all genders. Catherine Bond Stockton has an amazing part of her book, Genders, where she talks about female uh, sexuality and the rise of chiclet and the way that capitalism and wealth dance together to form our understandings of gender. To set up the message that Gretchen is going to preach, uh, Tim and I read a selection from Peggy Ornstein's 2020 book, Boys and Sex, which is subtitled Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. Now, my husband and I, we actually read this book, or listened to it rather, as we were driving down to New Mexico last year, and I was struck with it. Firstly, how painful it was to listen to these young men as they struggled with their own identities, how to relate um, to people of all genders, how to think about themselves in a positive way. It was kind of a depressing read. Now, Peggy Ornstein spent um, two or three years talking to young men, primarily college and uh, college-bound young people, um, about their relationship with masculinity and sex and it's a really, really in-depth, deep dive into these questions. And so I'd recommend it to, to everyone, and especially if you are parenting a person who's going to be in that uh, age group or is in that age group, um, or maybe even has been in that age group. It might give you some sense of how, what the terrain is that they're, they're challenging or that they're moving through. So the selection you're going to hear is a part of the book where Peggy is asked men aged 16 to 22 to describe their ideal guy. And Tim and I are going to read a few of their responses. Reserved. You can't flaunt your emotions. You have to be strong emotionally and physically. If I have issues, if I have something wrong, that's my problem. I have to deal with it. Tristan, 18, Los Angeles. You've got to look ripped, be tall, have fair skin, talk to a lot of girls, your basic stuff pretty much. I don't fit into it at all because, for one, I'm Latino, and I'm short, and I'm not ripped. Marcos, 16, hobo. Definitely a business major, involved in Greek life, graduating and getting a job at Morgan Stanley, making like 250000 a year, working 80 hours. I mean, that's probably the goal. Chris, 20, Raleigh. You have to be smart, but also hood, or whatever you want to call it. Combine them just right, and you're the perfect black guy. Tay, 17, Washington, D.C. 
The biggest single determining factor is assertiveness. If I am dominating other people, I am being masculine. Ryan, 18, San Francisco. Competitive. Definitely competitive. Jason, 21, Seattle. Chill. You gotta be chill, not take things too seriously. Zach, 20, Portland. You can handle yourself. You don't take disrespect. Jalen, 18, Baltimore. If you want to get girls, you got to be me. You got to be an asshole. James, 16, San Jose. Sports is a big deal. If you're good at sports, you're okay as a guy. And hooking up with a lot of girls, definitely. Commitment is a sign of weakness. Oscar, 17, Boston. Athletic. You're at every party, but not partying too much. You're hooking up with multiple girls, but not every girl. You're smooth. You're social. You got game. Connor, 21, Philadelphia. Athletic. Athletic. Definitely athletic. We'll come back to that reading in a moment. First, I need to tell you about this perfect moment that Carrie and I had before we had children, where we had a sense of control about who our kids would be. See, Carrie and I, we adopted through foster care, and as a part of the application, we filled out a questionnaire about which kids we would and would not accept. Age, race, drug exposure, various medical conditions, and a great variety of behaviors to choose from. All of these were options for us to consider. Could we parent kids that did that? or were like that, or came from that. 17 and a half years into parenting, I recognized that this whole thing was obviously a fantasy, mostly because being a parent is an experience of just finally figuring out how to parent your kid just in time for them to completely change. And also, of course, for kids coming from foster care, which is to say coming from trauma, it is important to think seriously about these questions. Because even though I do believe in, that love wins in an ultimate sense, I have also come to understand that love cannot fix everything. And so it's good that they ask you to get honest about your own limits. The check boxes that required no conversation or getting honest, however, were the ones that were marked M and F. They didn't give us an option for NB or intersex for the record, but we would have checked those too. Like a lot of parents, we just wanted a kid. Whatever their gender and actually as queer identified feminists, we weren't sure how much these early on designations even mattered. We would be raising our kids without traditional notions of gender, since gender is, after all, a social construct. For this reason, when our son Joseph arrived, when our daughter Gracie was two and a half, we did not make a concerted effort to go out and buy so-called boy toys. Gracie had plenty of toys, we thought. She had books and dress-up items and all kind of stuff for imaginative play. These were obviously enough. We had like a whole room filled with toys and toys don't have a gender. Joseph was in many ways a different baby than Gracie. First of all, he was a very good sleeper. She, not so much. He was easygoing and unless he was overtired or hungry, he was just pretty flexible. I mean, he didn't seem to have any strong preferences. I mean, he did really like it when we pay attention to him and we were always like oh what a typical second kid to set such low bar expectations for his parents this impression of our son continued until he was just about a year old easygoing no real strong preferences not really excitable not sad either that is until one day we took joseph over to our friend's house to play our friends had two boys. They were exactly the same age as our kids, and they had 
every traditionally boy toy that exists. Monster trucks, trains, blocks, balls, a tool bench with tools, dinosaurs, and then all the books were about trucks and trains and blocks and balls. There were zero dolls, no musical instruments, no puzzles, and no cooking station like we had at our place because remember, toys don't have a gender. So we walked into our friend's house and Joseph saw all of the toys and the trucks all over the floors, the train on the table, and literally in that instant, he became a different kid. He started cheering, making noises we'd never heard him make before. And he was saying what had, he had already told us. This was his first word, but he said it a lot. Ball. Yes, his first word was ball. I put him down and he's, he wasn't walking yet. So he just like scooched himself over faster than I've ever seen him move and started rooming all the trucks and then the trains. And then he threw the ball. Carrie and I laughed so hard. I'm like, Joseph, I guess we need to get you some different toys. <laughs> ball, he said, smiling. My relationship with boys and men and masculinity has always been to a degree confusing. I mean, I never had confusion about being a girl or certainly didn't want to be one of the boys, but I was perpetually confused about why boys were given access to things that I was not. From leadership roles to athletic attention to pants. Literally, in my Catholic school, only boys were allowed to wear pants. It was a big conversation until about third or fourth grade that I was in, and so they changed the policy at that point. Until then, it was jumper dresses, plaid, and polos, and sweaters, and also, of course, shorts under those jumper dresses because boys like to flip the skirts up. Now, because I was raised Catholic, I took it as a given that men were in charge, even if it was also obvious to me that women were doing most of the actual work. Now, as a self-proclaimed math nerd, I spent a lot of time with boys, mostly white boys, growing up, my fellow math nerds, who all found me a tolerable addition to the otherwise all-boys math team and the Knowledge Bowl. So, nerd. At least I was tolerable as long as I didn't bring down our scores, which I didn't. I want to say to you that I, I thought the same about them, like I was tolerating them as long as they didn't bring down the scores, but I didn't. I knew my spot was contestable in ways that theirs was not. When my pre-calc teacher in junior year announced to the class one day that I was scary smart, I literally argued with him. I was like... No, Jason Zanone and Ron Belgau, they are scary smart. I just work hard. Somewhat relatedly, the first boy I really liked, he seemed from all appearances to like me back, but for some reason never seemed to make any moves. So finally I decided I was going to ask him what was going on, and he blurted out, boys don't want to have sex with girls like you. I spent so many hours trying to figure out what he meant by that. Like, what was wrong with me? Even though in some weird way, I actually think he meant it as a compliment. Now, my parents were, for most of my growing up, traditional in their gender roles. My mom's primary labor was raising me and my two sisters, along with caring for our home and preparing food. And my dad's labor was his professional career as an architect a job that brought him, as he would often report at the dinner table, in contact with different types of, and this is his word, so I'm taking a chance you'll tolerate it in a sermon, dicks. Yes, my dad, this is his word, my dad would spend a portion of most every family dinner telling us, reporting in from the day, about the book that he was going to write someday called Dicks. Each chapter, he said, would be a different sort of dick that shows up in a business meeting to sabotage the possibility of progress or collaboration. 
I hope it's clear by now, you seem to get it, that my dad dad wasn't really talking uh, that his chapters would be describing literal anatomy, although it was his consistent and gleeful metaphor. It was his elaborate and to us highly entertaining explanation to his wife and his two daughters about what it was like to work in the world of men. Still, it wasn't until college that I started to get a framework for gender and the ways it had been impacting me my whole life. Feminism undid Catholicism for me way more than coming out did. I I think I might have been able to reconcile being bisexual with being traditionally religious, but I could never figure out how to call something so integrated with patriarchy my religion. Now, in my new framework, men became less confusing and more problematic, especially straight men, especially frat boy types and what the culture would now call bros. The, you know, the stereotypical athletic sort kind of described in the reading earlier, the sort you might find with face paint on at a football stadium or as the head of a large corporation like a bank or an oil company or a law firm. The sort who, when I look at my now almost six foot tall, almost 15 year old son, suddenly appear to be much less like the enemy and more like our collective responsibility. Not to condemn, but to try to understand, maybe even heal. Or to say it another way, I have, I have taken multiple graduate and under, undergraduate level classes on gender, feminism, intersectionality, womanism, ecofeminism, and queer theory. I have even sat on a panel with one of the leading voices on gender, Kate Bornstein. And by the way, I am a religious professional in a tradition that offers lifespan education in gender and sexuality. I say all of this not to flex but to confess. Because even though I have all of these tools and gender expertise, I am still stumbling my way through this question of what it means to be a man and to help my son become a man. Especially in ways not like the guy friends in theater, my guy friends in theater, or even like the boys on my math team and their now extremely lucrative jobs in programming today. Because Joseph has been telling us very clearly since he was a year old, that is not his path. My son is a football player, a weightlifter, a mountain biker. He likes video games, and wears an Oregon Ducks hat and shirt basically every day. And sometimes he calls me bruh. And sometimes I let him. So what exactly is that in its best version? Some days I feel so unsure, I start to wonder if I really should have paused on that M checkbox after all. Now, it does help to know, however, that I'm not alone in this confusion. In the last few decades, sociology professor Michael Kimmel has led an entire academic degree program exploring this question of men and what it takes, what it means to be a good man. Kimmel is at the forefront of the emerging field of men's studies, which is a direct counterpoint to the long-held idea that men don't have a gender, since being a man is just the default of what it means to be human. Like, everybody else has gender, man's just a person, a human. The, The category of man, like the category of white or the category of straight, is just default. The word That needs no other words besides why would you need to study men's history, for example, since isn't that just what we call history? This is what some people have, most people have tended to think until recent years when people like Kimmel have started to realize that so much has now been considered about what it means to be something other 
than man and has left a lot underexplored and unarticulated about this category, man, which in turn leaves unconscious assumptions about manhood intact, even reinforced, and keeps that cone of masculinity or of manhood narrow and very confining. In that important, insightful, and entirely troubling book, Boys and Sex, Peggy Orenstein shares that there appears to be a huge shift in how young men today perceive women. Most men today believe in gender equality in the classroom, in leadership, in athletics, in professional opportunities. They have many uh, platonic friendships with women. Yet, as she says, when I ask them to describe the ideal boy, the ideal guy, these same boys who were coming of age in the 2000s, appeared to be channeling the in 1955. Their definition of masculinity had barely budged. Emotional detachment, rugged good looks with an emphasis on height, sexual prowess, athleticism, wealth, at least someday, dominance, aggression. A 2018 national survey of over a thousand adolescents found that although girls believe that there were many ways to be a girl, the big honking caveat being that they still felt valued primarily for their appearance, boys felt that there was only one narrow pathway to successful manhood. They still equated the display of emotions, most emotions, as well as vulnerability, crying or appearing sensitive or moody with acting like a girl, which in case you were wondering is not a good thing. Feminism may have afforded girls an escape from the constraints of conventional femininity, offered them alternative identities as women and a language with which to express their myriad of problems, but it has ma made few inroads with boys. Whether you lab label it the mask of masculinity, toxic masculinity, or the man box, the traditional conception of manhood still holds sway, dictating how boys think, feel, and behave. Now, one of the biggest surprises for me in parenting a boy and therefore spending a lot of time with boys like him at different ages in stages is just how tender-hearted and demonstrably loving boys can be with each other and with their parents even way more than my daughter and her friends were with each other or towards us. I confess, I didn't really know that about boys, particularly football-oriented boys. I didn't know they were so soft. In the cis boys and men that I've known, there's, there's always been a few I'd describe that way, but I thought they were just kind of the exceptions, or they were my gay friends. But I, I, I simply didn't know that this story that we've been told about boys' lack of emotionality and warmth was indeed a story even for the ones that really, really like monster trucks. And I also have to say that as the group of kids in Joseph's peer group have gotten older, this softness has slowly and surely slipped away. In place of hugs, there are high fives and man nods, my son and his friends, these boys I've known since they were five, they're now teenagers, teenage boys, boys who watch YouTube and play video games and spend at least some time every day in the locker room where jokes and trash talk most likely seep with sexism and homophobia and racism most often sanctioned by their coach or teacher. Increasingly in their world, they will learn, they have learned, they will keep learning that men must protect themselves and their identity as men above all else, even if it means they will sacrifice their humanity. 
Unitarian Universalist jo Minister Joanna Fontaine Crawford reminds us of the famous quote from Margaret Atwood that, quote, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. She says, we usually pay attention in this quote to the disparity of the stakes men and women each face, being laughed at versus being killed. But what we also, what we forget to notice in this statement is that it reveals just how afraid men are of being humiliated. Men are taught that humiliation would be worse than death which does help to explain why some young men seem to believe that picking up a semi-automatic weapon is a reasonable response when you're embarrassed. It also helps to explain why, in recent years, increasing numbers of men have found a home in what some call the manosphere. It builds on the ideas of the 1970s anti-feminist men's rights movement. The manosphere is a mostly white, straight male space filled with bloggers, influencers, and online forums, Reddit, in, dedicated to misogyny and the idea that white men are the ones who are actually oppressed. It includes people who still identify as men's rights activists, as well as a group now known as MGTOW, or I think I'm saying that right, it's M-G-T-O-W, men going their own way. That means those are men who believe women are so toxic, they should just be avoided altogether. It also includes pickup artists, which just like it sounds, it's a group focused on seduction techniques. And finally, incels, involuntary celibates, aka those men who believe they are entitled to sex with women but aren't getting it and so therefore are mad at the women. They're involuntarily celibate. In the last decade, that manosphere, as with and not distinct from white nationalism, has moved from the fringes of society and culture to the mainstream. As just one example, the self-proclaimed misogynist and also recently arrested for sex trafficking, Andrew Tate, is currently one of the most well-known and even well-respected figures for tween and teen boys today, including, I promise you, for some of the boys you know and love. Some of the boys I know and love. I, just, just try going to uh, boys you know in your life, actually any teen or tween, and ask them if they know about Andrew Tate. See what happens. As middle school teacher Allison Oakes summarizes, Tate espouses horrifically misogynist, misogynist views but the problem is he also offers some pretty basic life skills that promote a healthy life. He talks about depression and vaping, even loneliness, things that young boys say they don't hear enough about. He then skillfully mixes in his own misogynistic and highly political views into this messaging. Oakes describes that in her classes, she's a middle school teacher, students would think that she would think would see through him instead def defend Tate. And a number, quote, seem almost obsessed with his Bugattis, his money and fame, and the outlandish things he says. They say things like, quote, I don't agree with his sexist comments, but he defends us men. Or, no one is taking care of our mental health, and he does. Or, he told us not to vape, see, he's a good guy. When we leave man out of our gender conversation, except as an object for critique, then young men go looking for a way to make sense of the world and their place in it. So it makes sense. They would turn to a framework that would offer something constructive and cohesive to address their, their experience. As journalist Clint Edwards writes, Tate gives young men a lens through which to view the world and even rules to live by. Being a mom to my son over the last 15 years has challenged how I think about manhood and masculinity. Challenged me first to redirect that anger that I have had for much of my life uh, about behaviors that for much of my life I've had to struggle against or heal from. Instead of being angry at men, 
I realized really I'm just angry at the cone of masculinity and manhood itself and the ways that we are all caught and hurt by it. All of us. Not because it can apparently include a love of monster trucks or trains or even football, which it turns out I kind of love too. But because somehow the toughness of these things imply that the cone doesn't also include tenderness and tears or any sort of vulnerability. Even though Brene Brown has repeatedly reminded us that vulnerability is the birthplace of strength and courage. I've also realized that a more helpful posture than confusion about men would be a posture of curiosity. At the start of the series, Sean asked us to get curious about the gender of each person we meet, whether their surface appearance seems to ind- whatever their surface appearance seems to indicate, to make space for more diversity than is immediately apparent or even overtly claimed. This is a practice I believe is especially needed for our cis-surfaced men. We need to take a deep breath and get curious about cis men in all and as much ways as we are curious about other gender expressions. We need to interrogate our own assumptions, the ones baked in, the still caught in the 1950s notions that even we have about what it means to be a man. We need to make space for softness and struggle, even if it had to go dormant in order for the man to survive. My guess is that this need for curiosity is especially true if you are yourself a cis man, because it is the water you swim in and have for your whole life, which means it's impossible to fully see without intention and help. This curiosity can make help us make the space, as Catherine von Stockton encouraged, between word and object, between man and the person called a man. Holding in this space, we make possible a world where men are no longer required to sacrifice their personhood for manhood. Because man, we know, is never, can never really touch the person. There will always be distance, space, breath. And in this space, there can also be creativity, imagination, and love. In this space... There is God. May it be so. And amen. There's so much to, there's so much that we could dive into in this sermon. But I love where Gretchen ended it, which is this invitation to spaciousness. I think there's nothing more powerful than the, the courage and the capacity for us to step into unknowing and mystery around gender, our own and other people, especially the ones, as Gretchen said, that we, that are considered the default. I think that there is an expansiveness and power in those places to rediscover ourselves, both set aside from these labels that have been put into us, but also in how we fill out these labels. You know, this relates to one of the questions that we got in the question box about labels. This person asked, sometimes the ever-expanding list of labels and flags feels empowering, but I also feel like they're limiting, especially for teenagers. Their development is ongoing and identities mutating with age and experience. My son's labels have changed quite a bit over the years. I don't want people to put him in a box. Let him develop and keep growing, but yet I see the need for these labels. You know, there's been a lot of rhetoric recently from the right about how it's really confusing for kids to know that there's lots of different gendered possibilities and that teaching about it at a young age confuses kids. Now, of course, the research shows the opposite. The research shows that when you give kids the language for their experience and they show that 
what they are maybe feeling is normal and part of a spectrum of possibilities that they could embody, then they don't go to a place of shame. What they go to is a place of exploration because they feel that they are supported in exploring. Now, all of us looking back can see how throughout our lives, especially in our childhood and our adolescence, we try on identity. We try on different ways of being. That's a normal and fundamental part of being human. Um, and so, of course, it's going to be normal for us to look at how young people are taking on different identities and sort of say, oh, well, this might be a phase. I would encourage us to do two things. The first thing is to say, what if it is the phase? How do I want to relate to it? How do I want them to think about how I related to them in their phase? Because we know young people, they feel things very intensely because those are their feelings. They're also their horizons for their life are smaller because that is by nature that they don't have these larger experiences. And so whatever is in front of them feels like it takes up their whole life. And that's normal. And so if they're having these questions and they're exploring these ways, who do we want to be for them? Of course, we want to be for them the parents that said, whatever is filling up your life, whatever questions you're living into, we are going to be here with you. We're going to support you. Whatever label, whatever flag, whatever expression that you're you're wanting to step into, we are going to be the people that are going to be there for you. And so when they look back in those phases, and maybe those phases continued to be true for the rest of their life, or maybe they didn't, what they can see is they had adults in their life that were in their corner, no matter what, which is the right type of relationship that you want to have with your kids. The second thing, so the first part, yes, it may be a phase. Don't think of these labels as limiting Think of them as handholds of self-expression. And the only way to actually experience self-expression is going through them. And if you've ever rock climbed, you know that having handholds is super, super helpful for that sort of exploration. Secondly, we know that especially for young people, a lot of these experiences and labels, um, although they evolve with different experiences, I mean, my own experience. I went from thinking I was bisexual to thinking, identifying as gay, and now I identify pretty primarily as queer. Um, you know, that's an evolution of my experience of myself. And yet there is a core part of that um, experience, which is about non-normativity. And so if you look at your kid's experience, your teen's experience, and they're stepping into non-normativeness, non-heterosexualness, non-cisgenderness. That is probably true for them. And so we need to honor that and knowing that, yes, it might change over their lives, how, what words they use, how they express that, but that is true for them. And so we want to be affirming of that truth, even as we know, you know the outer clothes, the outer expressions, the words might change. There's that distance, right? The distance between words and self. They are grasping on words which do not ever conform completely to who we are. And yet, they can be those handholds to navigate through, the, uh, through life. Two of the other questions that we got, I'm going to kind of lump together. The first is about the origins of gender. The question goes, what was the fundamental human need that was fulfilled when gender was constructed with words? When Latin language designated female and masculine words, what gender was either this or that? Why was that important? What need did it fulfill? And the second question is, if there aren't two genders, how many are? So this question of the origin of gender is a really complicated one because the, the concept of gender has not been consistent throughout human history. And yet when we look back, we can see something that correlates to the idea of gender having existed for a very long time. So let's unpack that. Of course, we know that bodies, human bodies, come in a range of different sexed expressions, right? Now, traditionally, we've assumed these fall into two um, categories, male bodies and female bodies. And of course, that's a misnomer because the complexity of biology, what we're learning about, 
And if you ask most scientists that, that look at these sorts of questions, they know that the diversity of the expression of human anatomy and physiology is vast. And we all live on spectrums of gendered experiences or sexed experiences from what genitals we have, both internal and external, what hormones are flowing through our bodies, what secondary sex characteristics show or not. You know, Olympic athletes have run into problems with this in which, you know, some people who are com- women or who are competing in women's sports have higher level of testosterone. And that has caused questions about how to create fairness when, you know, some women are creating higher amounts of testosterone than others. But that's a natural variation within our species. Our species naturally fluctuates in these different areas. And then we can talk about intersex people who are born with external genitals that don't neatly fall into the categories that we've categorized. And that makes up about one in 60 people. So the first part of this is to say that although a little content warning that I am going to be talking about what happened and happens to many intersex infants who are born who are surgically, uh, quote-unquote, corrected in ways that intersex advocates tell us is mutilation. So if that's not something you want to hear, thanks for listening. I'm not getting into any sort of graphic descriptions of it, just merely talking about it and the way it has created a concept of gender. Our bodies fall along different spectrums. We have created a concept to sit on top of that, which is gender, that there's something that exists maybe in our minds that is distinct from these sex differentials that have existed, you know, ever since humans have existed before, ever since humans have evolved to exist. So what is that thing that we've put on top of gender? Well, the first thing we have to know, or edit, so what is that thing that we've put on top of sex? The first thing we have to note is that culturally, the idea that there are two genders is not supported when we look at cross-cultural anthropology. We know in many First Nations communities, indigenous communities across the world, even here on Turtle Island, as well as different countries around the world, they have experience with multiple different gendered or sexed expressions. You know, the Bible has at least six different sexed experiences that the Levitical laws create controls over or uh, ritual protocols for. You know, in, when I was in Thailand, there were at least four or five different genders of people moving through the world. And that was, has been accepted for a long time. So part of the need for gender is firstly to create a sense of order and control around this sort of chaos that is our bodily diversity. But also, as Catherine von Stockton writes in her book, Genders, that the origin of gender in its modern incarnation really is tied to the early um, 20th century, when there was kind of a crisis in the reality of sexed beings. What she writes about is there's this doctor, Dr. Money, who was trying to deal with the fact that infants, intersex infants who were born with genitals that didn't easily comport to one category or another, that their very existence undermined the idea that there were two sexes, right? And so, you know, by definition, their existence says, hey, there are more than this. And so what they did is that they committed committed what intersex advocates, activists would call genital mutilation, that they would mutilate unconsensually the genitals of these young people, of these infants, to conform their genitals to what they should be. And that should be, of course, can't be the sexed designations, because of course, they themselves confound those, as they have to be something different. And so what you have to do is you have to create a concept of a gender that exists outside of those genitals, those sex differentials, for them to comport to, to, which is this concept of gender. That gender is an experience, an identity that sits on top of our body. And so she argues that the place that gender comes into being is actually from a crisis of these questions of binary sex. And so, of course, these doctors were trying to reinforce binary sex, but they had to create this category of uh, gender to fit these infants that didn't, that broke the box so they could suddenly fit the box. Suddenly gender was something that comports on top. So 
there's a need for organization of society, control of society, but also understanding of ourselves. So if there aren't two genders, how many are there? I would say that there are infinite genders. And that in fact, we lump all of us into these categories of genders, even the spectrum of identities that we have. And all of us actually embody a unique gendered experience, that there's a space between the words and ourselves. And although that there's commonalities between us and other people and maybe our gendered expression, that does not mean that we fulfill the same thing, even if we use these same words. And yet, of course, these commonalities gave rise to lived-like experiences that can create coalitions and connections and understanding. And so there's the complexity of our infinite diversity and yet a mysterious unity, one of our five genders. So if there aren't two genders, how many are there? There's probably infinite number of genders and there's infinite number of gendered experiences that we can come along with and see commonalities and create shared identities and experiences under. And with the way that patriarchy um, has infested our society, we can see how the elevation of one gender of men to, into control and authority has created really damaging repercussions for our society and has actually then created a, the response in the feminist movement, queer, queer movement, to throw off the yoke of that oppression. But that doing that through a gendered lens needs to be complex, right? Because as we saw with white feminism, leaving behind black women who were saying that, yeah, sexism is bad, but also racism is creating a different sex gendered experience for us as black women. You can see how even in that case, there were two gendered experiences, at least amongst women, and how to move through politically was a big question. I hope that that helps, gives some handholds, and I know that there's so many more questions to come, and that's why we're in this series. So keep your questions coming. It's been an honor to hear them, and I can't wait to continue this wonderful series with all of you. So thanks for listening to the podcast. Next week, we're going to be really diving into the feeling of stuckness in gender roles and gendered expectations. And then the last week, we are going to dive into some really concrete talking points of how we can combat gender extremism on the right. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>